Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union label. That's to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, headquarters of Militant Moderation, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. Since I do cover national security a lot, I would like to suggest that we keep a bit of an eye today on what's happening in Pakistan. Pakistan is important for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones is that they have the bomb. And when you have nuclear bombs, uh, you're important and instability in your government is a thing that everybody should take seriously. And that's what's happening in Pakistan right now. Pakistan's government is never really terribly stable at the best of times. A little fun fact about Pakistan. No Pakistani prime minister since it became an independent country has ever finished his term in office. Every last one of them has gotten the boot for one reason or another by some means or another uh, before they finished out their, their term of service. So it's a rich tradition over there in Pakistan. And the previous occupant of that office, uh, the guy who was in there until last year, his name is Imran Khan. He was the Pakistani prime minister. He was a former sports star. Uh, he was a bit of a playboy in his younger days, a glamorous fellow. But as he got older, he's 71 years old now, as he got older, he remodeled himself as a stern Islamist, a, a hardcore practitioner of Islam with a, a populist base in his party that's it's a very Islamist supremacist type of party. And he got knocked out of parliament or out of office last year, prime minister, by a vote of no confidence in parliament. That was kind of a new one. None of the Pakistani prime ministers ever got bounced by that method before, but that's what happened to him. And as soon as he got kicked out of office, he starts plotting his return to power. Imran Khan sits down and gets together with his party and he maps out a strategy by which he was going to return to the prime minister's office. And part of that strategy is holding big rallies, getting people together, uh, making his popular support very visible in the streets. They hold demonstrations and marches all the time, uh, criticizing the sitting government as a corrupt and competent mess that has to go, and then pushing for early elections, which is the way of the Pakistani political system. They can, they can push for early elections under certain circumstances. He wanted to do that, and he's convinced that if he does that, if he forces an early snap election, he's going to win, and he might be right. I mean, the, the latest round of polling out of Pakistan says he is the most popular politician in Pakistan. Even though he got kicked out of the prime minister's office, he has a very rabid following. His supporters are very devoted to him, and uh, he's well-poised to make his way back into the prime minister's seat if he gets the vote. But therein lies the rub, because Imran Khan is under some legal scrutiny for his time as prime minister in Pakistan, and so are the rest of them. Every Pakistani politician has like a dozen corruption charges posted against him at any given time. But he's ahead of the curve. He's got 100 
plus investigations pending against him right now. And he says, Khan says, that all of this is just a scurrilous effort by his political opponents and the sitting uh, Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif and his government to neutralize him as a threat. They know he's coming for them and he's going to win. So they're going to take him out with allegations and investigations and and so on. And it's all just a plot to get rid of him. Well, a little while ago, uh, Imran Khan was, was campaigning. It was last November and he got shot. Somebody tried to assassinate him. He gets shot in the leg. And he says that was the government trying to rub him out. And he refused to go to some court appearances for his many charges that are pending against him for corruption and impropriety of various sorts, because he said that the courtroom was full of government assassins who were going to kill him if he showed up at the courtroom. So that's why he wouldn't go. He stays at his house most of the time when he's not on the campaign trail. And he's got a mob of his supporters, like a virtual army of them, are lined up around his house to prevent the cops from messing with him while he sits there in his HQ. Well, this all came to a head today. This has become a big crisis in Pakistan, which again has nuclear weapons and is a strategically pivotal country in the region, a big part of China's power play to move into the Middle East and Central Asia. So, you know, Pakistan, a rival of India, which is a major U.S. ally. The Indians and the Pakistanis are never far from uh, from going after each other in a, in a bad way. And this, this could bring India to the brink. I'm sure they're all on high alert right now as, as this drama unfolds. So Imran Khan goes to the courthouse in Islamabad today to answer some of the charges against him, one of his corruption cases. And he gets there and they're checking him in. He's in this room where they do biometric screening on the incoming defendants. And boom, this squad of paramilitary police officers in riot gear storms into the place, smashes the windows, beats the crap out of everybody, according to the people that were there. They said they they basically clubbed everyone in sight in the submission that got in their way. And they grabbed Imran Khan and they, they hit him with the clubs a couple times too. One of the eyewitnesses says they clubbed him in his wounded leg where he got shot. And then they drag him out and they throw him in this armored paddy wagon and they take him off to face charges. And all of this was done without the knowledge of the judge of the Pakistani Supreme Court who was expecting Khan in his courtroom. This guy just looks up from his papers and hears all this banging and crashing. And the next thing you know, Khan's gone. So he's livid. The judge is livid, says, how dare you kidnap this guy out of my courtroom? He was here to face charges in my court. The government says they had to do that because there was an outstanding warrant for Khan's arrest on very serious corruption charges and the implicit uh, understanding. I don't think anybody in the Pakistani government really came out and said it in so many words, but the implicit understanding is that every time we try to arrest him, and there have been several previous attempts, a mob of his supporters forms up to defend him. So they're basically saying, we had to send in this squad of paramilitary guys to do a smash and grab and take him out because there's no other way to arrest him because the supporters would form a mob and protect him if we didn't do that. So, of course, Khan's uh, party is not happy about this. He's not happy about it. His political party, which is called PTI, is calling for demonstrations in the streets. And they've already, uh, from what I have seen in the news, they've already broken into a couple of police and military facilities. And a pretty uh, big crowd of Khan supporters was forming up outside of the military facility where he's being held. He was taken to this military garrison near Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. That's where they're going to hold him until they do whatever they're going to do. And a bunch of his supporters are lined up out there and it could get ugly. They might try to storm the place. 
So this is all something you want to keep an eye on because they are so strategically important and we don't know what the end game here would be. This could very easily end with the sitting government of Pakistan being completely destabilized. There could be an uprising rights in the streets. Khan is, is really popular. He's got a lot of supporters. Uh, they're very devoted to him. So they could cause all kinds of trouble over the next few days. And it's very possible that this could escalate in a variety of different directions. The government's really mad at Imran Khan for accusing them of trying to assassinate him and for claiming that the Pakistani military and intelligence services are all involved in some giant plot to kill him which is not implausible. He doesn't have any proof for this. And the, and the government says, you're just launching wild allegations. You're destabilizing the country by saying these things and you have no proof. And he doesn't, he hasn't advanced any proof. But anybody who has studied the Pakistani intelligence services will not find it inconceivable at all that they might be involved in assassinating a domestic political enemy. Uh, the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence service, has a legendary history of being, uh, shall we say, flexible and their morals and what they do and how much the elected government of Pakistan controls what they do. So it's not totally crazy that they would have had a bunch of assassins in the courtroom disguised as sonographers ready to kill him when he walked in the door. There's no proof that they were ready to do that, but it's not beyond the realm of reason that such a thing could happen. So this could very well end with his supporters destabilizing the sitting government. The military could very easily be dragged into this in a variety of different ways. If Imran Khan is correct and the government wants him dead, well, there's nothing stopping them now. They could always get rid of him from wherever they're holding him at this military base and say they shot him while he was trying to escape or something of the sort. You know, if they were going to do something like that, they certainly could. They could say he had a heart attack under stress or whatever they wanted to say. And who knows what that would do to the uh, unstable situation in Pakistan. So definitely something we need to keep an eye on, even if we're not fond of that part of the world and we, we're not surprised that it's rife with instability. It tends to be, sadly. But uh, this particular case is one to watch because of the new nuclear component. One other thing that I was thinking about uh, today was this thing in New York about the subway guy, this Jordan Neely guy who was, who was nasty on the subway. And there's this big push on now to get people to accept that all kinds of rude and criminal behavior are just the way it is. Like you just put up with it. When crazy people come on the subway in New York, you just lower your eyes, don't make eye contact with them, let them do and say whatever they're going to do and say, and just enjoy your, your vibrant diversity. You know, you're not supposed to do anything or, or defend yourself. But this put me in mind of some something from almost 10 years ago now, 2015, 2016, I guess this happened. Do you remember the cat call videos? The cat call videos. This was a manufactured controversy, a publicity stunt, and it was all about how women supposedly couldn't walk through a city without getting cat calls from men. And this was horrible. We were supposed to take action immediately. This was supposed to be a, a ding on our entire civilization. And yet here we are seven, eight years later, and now we're being told you just got to put up with people groping you and saying lewd things to you and screaming threats at you because that's just the way it is to live in cities. What a journey we've undertaken in just a few short years. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. Spring is here. Time to get out of the gym and take your workout outdoors. Whether you're walking, running, swimming, or biking, it's important to have a proper warm-up routine to prevent injuries. Five-time Ironman triathlon world champion Craig Crowey-Alexander has some advice. 
Sprains, strains and injuries can happen to any athlete. Even a minor injury can affect your performance and derail your fitness routine. One of the best ways to try and prevent injuries is to make sure you prepare properly. Alexander recommends always starting with a 10 to 15 minute dynamic warm-up. Activation exercises combined with some dynamic movements like lunges are great for warming up. Focus on one specific movement at a time until you feel ready to go. Be sure to listen to your body and use proper support gear when needed to protect yourself and prevent injury. The Curad Performance Series Ironman lineup includes rugged supports, wraps, kinesiology tape, bandages, and analgesics to support you on your fitness journey. For more, go to curad.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon-St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to skill 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States including yours, but they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. 
the Chinese foreign minister, Xin Gang, met with the U.S. ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, the other day, and that wouldn't normally be newsworthy, except it hasn't happened since February. There was a significant freezing of U.S.-Chinese relations after February, which was the month of the Chinese spy balloon. That's when we had the Chinese spy balloon incident, and ever since then, things have been exceptionally tense between the U.S. and China, but now it looks like perhaps things are thawing out a little bit, and there are people that say we really need to engage diplomatically with China, no matter what complaints we might have about their behavior or their goals, because the alternatives to engagement are not appealing. Here with us to talk about is Lyle Goldstein, Director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Yeah, thanks, John. Glad to be with you. So sure, a lot of people don't trust China, don't trust its motivations, disapprove of its actions, but there is that school of thought that says they are a titanic, powerful nation. We can't just snap our fingers and make them go away. So we have to engage with them in some way, even as we are critical of them. And now it looks like maybe that might start happening a little bit more if we're finally over the big freeze after the spy balloon incident. Or is that your thinking, or do we need to have good relations with China, no matter what we think of their agenda? Yes, I generally uh, am a believer in in engagement. I think, uh, I mean, of course, our you know deep antagonism with China goes back uh, well before the the balloon. You know, tensions have been rising for years and and really spiked in the last uh, five years, I would say. But we, uh, you know, in a nuclear armed world, um, we absolutely need to talk uh, frequently. With China, you know, your listeners surely know that there are uh, a lot of frictions um, and, and really serious frictions that could lead to war. And, uh, you know, this, this kind of war could be devastating uh, to the United States, but, you know, for the entire world, really. Well, it makes sense to have some degree of diplomatic interaction, but some people would say that the problem is that over these last 20, 30 years, particularly, China tends to abuse that kind of interaction. They take advantage of us. They steal intellectual property. They pull little diplomatic tricks and maneuvers. They're constantly probing at us, exploiting our weaknesses, and they're increasingly interfering in Western politics. Canada just kicked out a Chinese diplomat because he was involved in a scheme to interfere with their internal politics and such things happen in the U.S. as well. So what are we to do with our posture, knowing that they tend to abuse engagement this way and view it as an instrument in their policy arsenal? Well, you know, the, uh, the problems you cited are, are um, you know, real, and we have to keep abreast of them. But I think uh, in the scheme of things, you know, uh, none of them are uh, present any kind of... Um, you know, really grave threat. I think we've learned over time that we need to be a bit more cautious with uh, these forms of engagement. But, uh, you know, I worked uh, for the Navy for, for decades and, uh, you know, it was clear to me that uh, actually it's very important that we, you know, engage regularly with the Chinese military so that we know more about the Chinese military. Uh, we don't want to be surprised. So it's quite important. And generally, uh, my sense was we would learn more from these engagements than they would. So, um, you know, China already knows a lot about our country. Uh, in some ways, we're, uh, um, you know, China itself is more of a mystery. So it's quite important that we stay engaged with China, know what's going on, and keep 
channels of communication open. Yeah, I recognize, you know, engagement does have some risks, but uh, I'd say the risks are much larger if we totally disengage and isolate ourselves from China. That's, that's I think, uh, more dangerous. Do you think that constructive engagement is likely to change their thinking on the things that we know are red lines? I mean, we know there are some things that are just, uh, you know, deal breakers invading Taiwan, a big one, obviously. Uh, China's continuing aggression in the South China Sea is an increasing concern. The U.S. is cooperating in a bigger way with the Philippines now to push back against China's encroachment into the Philippine exclusive economic zone. And of course, there's human rights uh, atrocities that China could perpetrate and has perpetrated that are, are serious sticking points for that relationship. Are we really going to be able to talk them out of doing any of these things if they're determined to do them? Well, I think we've got to set reasonable goals, John. I mean, no, I've never maintained that a goal of engagement is transforming or changing China, really. I mean, and it's quite unlikely that we'll change their behavior, even vis-a-vis Taiwan or the South China Sea. Uh, so I, I wouldn't set those kind of goals, but uh, to my estimate, you know, if if uh, China tried to change our behavior in our neighborhood, you know, how we interact with Mexico or something like that, you'd find uh, we'll, they would also be unsuccessful. So I, what I'm trying to say is a uh, more reasonable goal for engagement is trying to prevent, you know, a major war, uh, trying to understand the other side. Uh, the idea that you're going to kind of transform their thinking or something, I think, is, is uh, you know, that, that's just very unlikely between two great powers uh, who have, you know, their own agendas, their own core interests. Um, but, you know, the, we just have to find a way to live with each other. Uh, and that involves, you know, a common American principle, which is live and let live. So I think that's our best approach with China. Well, one place that I know there's some optimism for constructive engagement bringing positive results would be North Korea. For many years, we've had thoughts that if we had a good relationship with China, if we dealt with some of their security concerns on the Korean Peninsula, and they, they have things that they are not happy about, like our anti-missile systems in South Korea, sensor systems that can reach into Chinese airspace, they have some concrete issues that they're not pleased with on the Korean Peninsula. And there's always this hope that if we could get a little friendlier with them and we could maybe address some of those concerns, they might take some steps to rein in the North Korean dictatorship and keep them from doing anything bad or to be pessimistic about it. If we aren't nice to them, they won't rein in North Korea and God knows what's going to happen. Yes, I think you stated it uh, quite correctly, but tensions are rising in a very dangerous way. So, uh, you know, I I think as you pointed out, um, things can get a whole lot worse on the Korean Peninsula and uh, we're we're hoping that China helps to rein things in. But at this point, I must say, you know, China, I've just gotten back from a trip there and the, the mood there is very, very dark. You know, uh, the, the, they're almost uh, to the point of, you know, ready to call us adversaries in a kind of uh, new Cold War. And I think that's uh, very much against our interests. And, you know, th- this would partially endanger uh, the peace on the Korean Peninsula, uh, which, you know, already shows signs of, uh, that it, that it may be going off the rails. So, yes, I think we, we do need to work with China on stabilizing the peninsula, uh, and um, you know, bring uh, you know, trying to bring the two Koreas back uh, back to the table. Uh, and um, you know, again, I, I think we have to have realistic goals. You know, I think at this point most would agree that denuclearization of North Korea is not a realistic goal, but. Can we somehow stabilize the peninsula? I think we can. And yes, I think we need to work with China on that. 
Well, the Chinese were very unhappy with the Washington Declaration, which was the South Korean president and President Biden uh, announcing they would cooperate in a number of ways more closely for security against North Korea. And then also the U.S.-Philippine rapprochement uh, is a problem for them. And the Filipinos are openly talking about us using their bases to defend their airspace. Is there a way we can smooth those edges in, in brief? Anything we could do that would make China feel better? It's going to be hard, uh, very hard. Uh, I would say they're particularly concerned about the Philippines. Uh, and I think we have to be quite careful there. That's, uh, it's so close to Taiwan. Taiwan is the, uh, the match which could light off the, the entire region and, and endanger the whole world. So, Lyle Goldstein, Director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward. We'll be right back. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along in this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Spring is here, and there's no better time to try something new. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar and enjoy real Coke taste and zero sugar. Now available at participating Burger King restaurants. Try Coke Zero Sugar with your favorite food from Burger King. Satisfy your hunger and enjoy Coke Zero Sugar with a piping hot breakfast sandwich, like a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant. Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant makes for a delicious breakfast to start your morning right. And don't forget the crispy hash browns. Or if the flame-grilled Whopper sandwich, BK Royal crispy chicken sandwich, or chicken fries are your fave, you are in luck. All Burger King menu items pair perfectly with an ice-cold Coke Zero Sugar. It's the perfect no-sugar sparkling beverage that goes great with everything. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar to enjoy spring your way at Burger King, where you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools... Suddenly, everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. 
Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, I'll tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. While the corporate world in America and the government agencies that oversee those corporations are very concerned with environmental, social, and governance uh, policies, ESG, which is all about supposedly making corporations more environmentally and socially responsible, making them think of a policy agenda besides just satisfying their shareholders, there are people that are not comfortable with any of that because it, it gets uncomfortably close to fascism, to political control of private capital. But also, uh, what about China? Because all of these American companies, to some degree these days, are in bed with China, none more so than the growing electric vehicle industry. The most important industry in the country, according to the U.S. government, is the electric vehicle industry, because it's what we're all supposed to transition into. And they get supplies and raw materials from China, which violates every single principle of ESG on a daily basis. Environmental, social, you name it. They use forced labor. They, they ravage the environment. They're, they're a joke compared to the standards being put on American corporations. So some people are starting to notice that difference and wanting to hold both companies and the government accountable for their different attitudes. Here with us to talk about it is Ethan Peck, associate for the National Center for Public Policy Research's Free Enterprise Project. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Hey, thanks for having me again. I mean, this is just a striking contrast, and it seems like what your free enterprise project is doing is stepping into this ESG debate and saying, yes, this is all very well and good, but we're, we've got serious problems in American corporations, overseas partners in China, and nobody's doing anything about it. We're just waiving all of our standards in order to get the lithium that we need. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest issues is the um, hypocrisy of it all. As you mentioned, we, the, a lot of the American corporations 
are promoting ESG here at home, uh, you know, setting unrealistic environmental standards for decarbonization uh, and net zero by 2050. But at the same time, they're investing in fossil fuels overseas um, and coal production overseas. Uh, and these also carry with it a host of uh, environmental issues themselves, one being lithium batteries are terrible for the environment, worse than gas, and another one being um, it's, the, it's the child labor and the forced labor, uh, and that's what we filed proposals uh, at, at, a, at a number of corporations this week addressing those concerns. Late last year, there was an author named Siddharth Kara who made a big splash with a book and an interview he did on Joe Rogan's radio show where he said he went to the cobalt mines that China runs in the Congo in Africa. And he said, you go there and it's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's a bunch of little kids sitting around in rags with, with hammers, knocking rocks open to get cobalt. It's, it's the most exploitative thing you've ever seen. And it's an environmental wasteland on top of being a human rights abuse. But American companies are basically being encouraged to look the other way and not care about any of that because they frantically need those rare earth minerals and China is the only source. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's another part of it. Um, China sort of forcing American corporate and the woke are forcing American corporations to adopt this green energy policy. But what that's really doing is China doesn't have any gas. Like we have fuel in our country. We just don't use it. And so moving away from uh, energy uh, self-sufficiency and towards uh, what China wants, which is uh, electric vehicles, that makes us more dependent on them and less um, and more reliable and adversaries that, that, than, you know, just our ability to be self-sufficient. We, so we filed a proposal at Ford, and the proposal requests an audit of Ford's um, supply chain uh, to analyze how much of the supply chain uh, for electric vehicle batteries is dependent on child labor. And what they said was, uh, we have a, a, a no child labor policy. We don't have any uh, child labor uh, uh, underage employees at Ford. And we basically said to them, yeah, that's not what we're asking you. You get, you source your minerals from somewhere. You're not, Ford's not digging in the ground themselves. Where are you getting yeah, it from? And you ex also you exactly. have commitments for the future. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And exact commitments of the future. It's going to get worse. They need more and more and more of it. Their appetite for these materials is growing as the transition to electric vehicles is made. And I can't help sounding a bit cynical here, but I find it difficult to believe that these corporations at Ford and these other big automakers were unaware of any of this until you pointed it out to them or until Siddharth Kara wrote his book. They're, these guys do due diligence on, on things all the time. They had to know that these transgressions were occurring in China. They just agreed to not look at it. I agree with you. And I mean, uh, two perfect examples. One is the most recent one with Budweiser uh, putting the trans activist on the can. I, they, Budweiser for decades has spent millions of dollars on marketing, getting to know exactly who their you know, ideal client is and, and who their customers are. They market for decades specifically to that customer, you know, the football-loving, truck-driving American. And now all of a sudden they turn on a dime and put a trans activist on the can claiming they didn't know that it was going to reduce sales. Of course they knew it was going to reduce sales. Of course they knew there was backlash. The point is that they don't care. They don't care if they reduce sales. They, we always hear this like, oh, like corporations only care about their bottom line. ESG flips that. It's sacrificing 
it's sacrificing the, the bottom line. It's sacrificing the return for shareholders for political orthodoxy. And that's what's going on also with the cars. Ford knows that they can't, that, that they have no idea how they're going to source uh, if they're going to turn their entire line EV by 2030, and so is GM, and so is Mercedes, and so is every other car manufacturer on Earth, all going EV by 2030, the amount of rare earth minerals we're going to need by then is unprecedented. And the, and the fact that none of these corporations have planned out how they're going to get this uh, these rare earth minerals out of the ground without relying on forced labor when they're already using it, it just it just shows you that you know it's it's not that they're incompetent they just don't care and that there's some other agenda and I believe that that agenda is not making the best product at the best value for uh, for customers and returning the best value for shareholders it's just turning over production to China. Which makes me a little cynical again, because having studied this issue, I don't know if there's enough rare earths in the world, period, to do what they're talking about doing. But if there are, there's no way they can do it without being highly reliant upon the supply from China and also developing other sources. They're going to have to not only take China's cobalt and lithium, they're going to have to have domestic lithium mines, they're going to have to invest in it around the world. And there's no way that any American-led corporate project is going to deliver those products at the same price China is doing with all the forced labor and environmental rapacity that they display. So this all sounds to me like we're going to wake up one day and discover electric cars are even more expensive than they already are because they can't get enough cheap lithium from China to build them anymore. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, at that point, they'll just be like, we never supported electric cars. Just like <laughs> the vaccine <laughs> was not supposed to, it's not supposed to uh, prevent infection. Two months after it was supposed to prevent, they said it was, I mean, that, that that's the goalposts keep moving and the point is not the end the point is to burn everything to the ground and retain control uh of the way people live their lives and the and the trojan horse is we care about the environment now ford motor put out a report not too long ago where they said they're losing scads of money on electric cars it, it's really bad they're they're losing money when they make profit on the other cars they do it seems like this electric vehicle transition is almost kamikaze suicide even if these companies are counting on the government to force people to buy them it just doesn't seem like the numbers are ever going to work out for this yeah people people don't even want them and you know ford they just put out the bronco right I see that car everywhere now. And uh, they finally go back to making an American car, like an American-style real car, after making minivans, essentially, for the last two decades. And people, what do you know? People actually want it. And so um, I think that a lot, of, a lot of corporations, not just car manufacturers, need to go back to their roots and sort of forget all of this woke nonsense, both in terms of... Um, ideals and values, but also in terms of aesthetics and uh, uh, beauty. The woke don't like beautiful things. Or, or as I've heard other people say, it's a war on things that work. They don't like things that yeah. work, so they always got to get rid of that and then try something else, and that, that's electric cars. Yeah. And you're right about the Bronco. You can't get those things. There's waiting lists for Broncos in, in most markets because they're so popular, because they went and built what customers actually want instead of forcing them to use these electric vehicles that they don't actually want. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely.
But what is the end game here? There have got to be corporate projections that show what's going to happen to their bottom line in five years, 10 years, 15 years, as this transition to a product nobody wants continues. Is, is there an escape plan here at Ford and other companies? Do they see a way of surviving this economically? Um, you know, this, this is where it gets very, very cynical because, uh, like I said before, I don't think Budweiser, the, the, the executives of Budweiser care about their stock price or the success of the company. I think that CNN knew when they weren't covering Epstein's story that they were going to lose ratings. I think that the purpose of the of a lot of this activism is to use corporations to push the activism regardless of what happens to the corporations. And I feel like maybe implicit in that kind of arrangement is the firm belief that the big government they support is going to take care of them, at least the executives. It's going to bail them out from the consequences of their decisions at our expense. Ethan Peck, Absolutely. Associate for the National Center for Public Policy Research's Free Enterprise Project. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you want to support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, 
Put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year, remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time, ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. The age of artificial intelligence is well and truly upon us, and consumers will be getting a taste of this technology in a big way very soon because the various browser makers and search engine giants are all introducing artificially intelligent bots that are going to be interacting with you. They're all based on a very successful demonstration of the technology called ChatGPT, and it's going to revolutionize, they say, the way that you use the Internet the way that you gather information and learn about the world. The problem is that these AI bots have biases. And in the case of ChatGPT, the one that really caught everybody's attention over the past year, it has very significant political biases that have been programmed into it by its makers. And that could only make the political bias situation in this country, slanted media information manipulation, worse than it already is. Here with us to talk about it is Michael Morris, Managing Editor at the Media Research Center's Free Speech America and MRC Business. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Hello, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So uh, your crew got a chance to ask ChatGPT what it thought of uh, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, and the difference in its responses was pretty striking, I understand. Absolutely right. Look, and it's even crazier than that. We didn't even use their full names. We just used the word Trump and the word Biden. And the bias that was exhibited from ChatGPT, the OpenAI product, was astounding. Uh, of course, Trump, uh, you know, obvious bias from the very beginning. Uh, 
showed him in the negative light, denigrating him as a controversial figure that was plagued with several high-profile investigations. Meanwhile, Biden, just some guy, you know, perhaps a hero, trying to overcome challenges that his predecessor left behind. That's a pretty significant uh, difference in attitude, and that's really only one of the two kinds of bias we could be worried about. We're worried about the programmers actually making the chatbot bias so that the AI you're talking to has a political agenda, but also even if they don't do that, the information fed into one of these bots can prejudice its responses. And we saw a demonstration of that last year when it turned out that these bots will answer questions about China very differently if you ask them in Chinese, because they start reading Chinese media sources and they process their answers and all of a sudden they sound like communist operatives instead of uh, impartial AIs. Oh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And look, I just want to read a little bit of what ChatGPT actually, you know, kind of gave out in its response. Here's what it said for Biden. It said, Biden has faced a number of challenges during his presidency, including a polarized political environment, ongoing debates over voting rights and election integrity, and rising tensions with Russia and China. But here's the kicker. Despite these challenges, he remains committed to his agenda and to working towards a more united and prosperous America. Sounds all, you know, all like roses and flowers and daffodils and sunshine. <laughs> what Chat GPT didn't mention, however, is the Hunter Biden scandal. Didn't mention the ongoing inflation and out-of-control spending. Didn't mention the growing immigration crisis. Didn't, didn't mention the ballooning national debt didn't mention the horrific Afghanistan withdrawal where we left billions of dollars of military equipment overseas. Instead, just put it again, painted a rosy picture. Which is difficult to explain in any way other than bias, because the information about all of those things is readily available. And if the bot made a genuine effort to digest all of the information about Joe Biden, it would certainly have seen those things. There's no way to avoid it, no matter how studiously the media wants to avoid talking about it. So the only conclusion is that the programmers made it be that way. Look, certainly seems that way. And, and look, let's delve into what it said about Trump. Here's, here's what it said. Trump was known for his controversial statements and policies, including his hardline stance on immigration, his America First foreign policy, and his skepticism of climate change. He also faced several high-profile investigations, including a special counsel investigation into his campaign's possible collusion with Russia and the 2016 election. Again, look at what it doesn't mention. You know, no mention that the Steele dossier was debunked here. Instead, it tries to point to the old Russia, Russia, Russia hoax that the media and the leftist big tech companies were trying to promote during much of his presidency. You know, the bias is certainly undeniable. There's no doubt about it. OpenAI readily admits on its site that ChatGPT sometimes will exhibit biased behavior. Oh, I'll say. OpenAI also acknowledges on its site that we expect it to have some false negatives and positives for now. But what OpenAI doesn't seem want to address is why AI chatbots bias seems to constantly run in one direction in favor of the left, and it's responses like these for Trump and Biden that are just the latest in a long list of bias examples that we have seen from ChatGPT. 
there were internet uh, visionary types back as early as the 2016 election that said search engine shenanigans were going to be something that really swayed American politics, that the big tech companies could now prevent you from learning certain things or do what, you know, the spot is doing and, and feed you an unfairly rosy interpretation of a favored candidate just by tinkering with the results of your Google searches and so forth. And the AI is just taking this to the next level, because when you talk to one of these bots, it's basically doing a thousand searches for you in order to formulate its answer. And if the bot is biased, it makes the problem of bias an order of magnitude worse than it even was when you had to sit there and type stuff into Google. Look, that's absolutely right. Look, the way I like to describe it is it's it's sort of automating the bias. So when, when these researchers put in inputs and this uh, artificial intelligence uses those inputs that go out and search for information, what it's doing is it's automating the leftist bias that it's being given in the inputs and also in the data sets that it's looking into. So absolutely right. This is this is a hundred, if not a thousand, maybe even a million times worse than what we've seen from the big tech bias and liberal media bias that we, that we've already uh, seen exhibited across, you know, the entire world. And it'll be worse still if this is popular, which the these companies all expect that it will be. I think right now you can opt into a sort of beta program for Microsoft's browser where it has the search engine replaced with one of these AI chatbots, and all of the big browsers and search companies are going to do that. And the reason you're supposed to be so excited about this is that instead of having to Google like, you know, 14 different things to figure out how to bake a pie, you can just say, how do I bake a pie? And the bot will just look up everything you need. You can say, write me a history of the Armenian genocide and it'll just run out and do 50,000 searches and get all the information you need in a matter of moments and that's going to make people if it really catches on and they like it it's going to make people even more dependent on these programs and less inclined to challenge them look absolutely right and and what's also terrifying is we heard from uh Twitter owner Elon Musk recently that he used to have conversations with the former Google CEO Larry Page on this issue of artificial intelligence. And Musk was warning that Page didn't seem to have safety in mind with regard to his creation of artificial intelligence. And that comes into play when you've got AI answering questions on transcendent truth. Larry Page apparently said that he wanted to create artificial superintelligence into some sort of digital god, and that is a terrifying prospect. It really is. We're always afraid of, of the robots coming to kill us or something, but the problem is not they're going to hurt us, it's that they're going to lie to us. Michael Morris, Managing Editor at the Media Research Center's Free Speech America, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today, sitting in for Alan. Thanks for being with us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.